The following is a conversation with Huan Jin Kim. Huan Jin is an Associate Professor in Classics, Historical and Philosophical Studies at Melbourne University. In 2004, he went to Oxford University on a Commonwealth Scholarship where he completed his PhD. He is widely published and has authored or edited several different books. On the podcast, we discuss his book, The Huns, Rome and the Birth of Europe. We discuss the underappreciated and under-researched history of the civilizations that followed and in some ways caused the fall of the Roman Empire. If you like this episode, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. these conversations with a question that's a bit broader than Hmm. uh, perhaps the topic we're going to go into Um, and the question I have is uh, as cliche as it sounds to what extent do you think uh, Hmm. people can trust history people can trust history they can't of course Um, even when we're dealing with uh, a situation like a car accident for example let us assume that there are four or five witnesses now of course there might be a miracle in which uh, all four, you know, four people agree on how this thing happened. But usually, of course, you get divergent uh, uh, takes on uh, how that situation unfolded and uh, who was responsible, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And isn't it interesting uh, as well that even if you agree on it, that might not be what necessarily happened. Exactly, exactly. The consensus consensus view might not actually be the reality. Uh, so if we are dealing with. Uh, uh, such a phenomenon, and given the fact that human error always comes comes into play, um, of course, the further you go back, the more difficult it is to decipher uh, what really happened. So we are at the mercy of the sources that we have, and of course, uh, there is no guarantee that the sources that we have are accurate. Uh, and of course, uh, in a lot of cases, uh, the histories are written by the victor. And even if it's written by the victim, of course, you cannot guarantee that that is also uh, an accurate uh, rendition of what happened. So um, historians like to, uh, you know, if you've been working on something for a long, long time, uh, it's very uh, easy for you to fall into the error of certainty, right? You, you, you're so preoccupied with the topic that you're engaged in that uh, historians often end up using words like, this is what happened. What we're actually trying to say is that this is what might have happened or should have happened uh, provided that uh, the, the sources that we have are remotely accurate, right? So these are, in other words, whatever is being written is dependent upon our assumptions to a certain extent. And also, uh, we are, uh, you know, inevitably people of our times. Uh, so the values and the prejudices of our current era uh, inevitably determines or at least influences the, 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 the way that uh, we view the past. And it's quite hard to adopt a mindset or a, a, a lens for viewing the world that will be timeless and uh, 
in 500 years now from now still be relevant? Yes, I, I mean, there, there, there will be some aspects which I suppose that people would be able to relate to, right? Uh, but that all depends on uh, what uh, uh, the values and perceptions of the people then are, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in 500 years or whatever it might be. So, uh, and of course, the things that we consider to be relevant or important uh, might not necessarily be relevant or important uh, to people later. Right. So uh, you'd notice that uh, value systems have changed quite radically in the last 20 years. Right? So, I mean, uh, the society in which I grew up in, uh, the values that were considered to be normal are no longer normal now. And of course, I would uh, hazard a guess that uh, certainly in 20 years' time, the same would be the case. Uh, so what we regard to be normal today or acceptable today would no longer be normal or acceptable then. Right. So uh, the the... The biggest danger, I suppose, faced by a historian uh, is when you anachronistically apply today's values to the past. That inevitably happens. Mm-hmm. No matter how, you, how much you try to be objective, it's, uh, the, the, this element of subjectivity always creeps in without you even being aware that uh, that is happening. You were saying that uh, historians have this way of viewing uh, history as this is what happened. Mm-hmm. Is there a lack of humility across the board with a lot of historians is yes. it and it's and it's mm. sort of quite hard to actually come at historians with a, mm. a novel opinion or a, uh, a new new view unfortunately that is the case i think not not for everybody of course but in many cases there are established dogmas and of course uh, a lot of historiography is very ideological at the same time right so uh, and ideology is like a religion to a certain extent it's a system of beliefs so once you are caught in the system of beliefs then uh, it's very difficult uh, for you to imagine uh, a narrative or uh, a context that is uh, divorced from that uh, ideological premise. And people who are ideological sometimes tend not to feel like they're part of an ideology. It's sort of like they're... Exactly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a vicious circle, mm. right? So, um, but... Uh, uh, I've, I've even had yes. this thought as... I was thinking recently as... Uh, Christianity seems to sort of mm. be uh, fizzling out a little bit, at least in countries like America, England, Australia. In academic circles, yes. yes. In academic circles, mm. but in general mm. as well, I think. I mean, in Europe, it's, mm. it, I get the sense that it's still uh, yes, as yes. dominant as ever. But mm. as that, I feel it's kind of in our DNA to still need an ideology. And now that mm. Christianity, there's almost like a big vacuum mm. of uh, people who no longer uh, believe in Christian values as perhaps their uh, parents or grandparents did, mm-hmm. uh, and now people are gravitating towards different ideologies. Do you think? Yes, any it, truth to that? Th- that is definitely the case. I mean, uh, even thirty years ago, uh, I can still recall that uh, schools were, of course, uh, there was a there was already a huge shift away from Christian values already back then. But uh, even an atheist in the Western tradition. Uh, was still kind of Christian in values, right? And now, of course, we are much less so. That is, I think, uh, uh, quite evident, uh, especially in academia, right? Especially in academia. Uh, But uh, having said that, of course, uh, we have replaced, I think, one uh, system of beliefs with another uh, to a certain extent. What do you think the other one is? Well, I mean, it depends on what your political persuasion is, right? But uh, certainly in academic circles, it's, it's a... I suppose it's a variant of socialism that has taken over. But it's interesting um, even how you're saying mm. uh, a political uh, opinion has mm. now supplanted uh, religious ideology. Yes, it's, I mean, but the, the fact of the matter is, I mean, for example, 
let's take one particular ideology as, as an example. What is Marxism? Yes, it's an ideology. It's an atheistic ideology, but it's also kind of a religion. Uh, in many ways, it has the same system of, uh, 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 you know, how should I put it? It's a culture of the downtrodden uh, about it. It's got well. I mean, it's uh, it has it sort of uh, uh, lays a claim to uh, to the absolute, right? So, you know, in other words, you've just replaced God uh, with something else, and uh, as a result, um, uh, w- without the sort of the, uh, the I suppose the, uh, the the ethical constraints, <laughs> mm. and that's why. Uh, so you can have someone like Lenin or Stalin, right? So you, the end justifies the means. So you, the the process by which you arrive at your desired goal is not really important at all. Well, I mean, it, it matters less. They feel the means justifies exactly. The so you can mm. annihilate whole groups of peoples without uh, without a second thought. Uh, well, I, I, it's not as simple as that, of course. But um, so uh, the, the the utopian ideologies of the twentieth century, which uh, which I suppose compensated to a certain way. Uh, for the 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 declining sort of religiosity of uh, of of uh, Western populations, uh, um, ironically, of course, produced a result which uh, was perhaps even worse than uh, the religious wars of uh, of uh, the seventeenth, the Thirty Years' War, for example, in the seventeenth century. I've always thought that um, people will say how many deaths of uh, Christians or uh, mm. Muslims. Uh, Perpetuated, but at the same far, time, far as, less than as soon, as, we, as soon as we got an atheistic culture, we had about a hundred million dead people. I mean, just uh, just uh, you know, Marxism alone is responsible for probably around about a hundred million deaths in the twentieth century. Do you find it strange uh, that I mean, yeah. a, and fascism, of course, for another you know sixty million? Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I find it strange that uh, there's far less taboo around the hammer and sickle and Marxist mm. meetings than there is mm. around the swastika. Yes, that's that's that quite. Uh, that's quite. I think uh, that's a travesty, in my view. Uh, given the fact that uh, I mean I come from a family that escaped, well, my ancestors were from North Korea, and uh, I, my great grandfather was uh, was killed by um, communists in North Korea for uh, harboring different political views. His entire village, which was, you know, I suppose kind of anti-communist, the, the entire village was wiped out. Uh, they they you know dragged everybody to a pit and then machine gunned them all. And this was not an isolated occurrence, right? So um, you're talking about uh, massacres uh, uh, that uh, cost the lives of millions across the board. Uh, and yet, uh, uh, I mean, Mao Zedong, for example, in China, is probably the, the worst mass murderer in history. But far less known than far Stalin. Far less known or, than or Stalin or even, even Hitler, yes. So uh, that is something that, uh, for example, people openly uh, display. Uh, um, symbols of uh, China's cultural revolution, for example. Even at uh, Melbourne Uni, you'll see mm. Marxist meetings advertised, oh, al- yes. albeit at the VCA, which I think is the mecca of those ideas, but yes. still kind of, it's yeah, as you said, a travesty. Mm. Well, I suppose to get into uh, what you specialise in, um, uh, perhaps first, just for the listeners, uh, explain what you specialise in and your background in uh, academia and mm-hmm. history. Yes, yeah, so just just to point out that uh, this I'm here in a, pri- a private capacity that I must uh, uh, you know sort of point that out. Uh, uh, but uh, yes, I, I work at the University of Melbourne and uh, I teach uh, ancient history. And uh, my area of specialization is uh, is ancient Greek history, 
but uh, I do, I, do uh, I suppose, do research on not just ancient history, but medieval history and also modern history. Uh, and uh, my, I suppose the, the topic that I've been particularly interested in uh, of late is the, uh, the history of uh, steppe peoples of Inner Asia, uh, the Huns in particular. Uh, so I've written a couple of books uh, on the Huns. And uh, I also work on uh, Greece and Rome and China comparative studies, uh, especially uh, focusing on the, the, um, the subject of ethnicity. So that's basically my background. Well, because I've always been, how I got interested in your work was, I've always been interested uh, in Roman history. Uh, and through uh, Frederick, mm -hmm. um, I was introduced to uh, you and your work uh, and in reading your uh, paper uh, or your book sorry I've, I found it fascinating how you saw the fall of the uh, Western Roman Empire not as the most interesting event of uh, late antiquity mm. but actually a consequence of uh, a far more reaching uh, evolution in uh, world politics back then yes yes I, I would say that um, I mean the Middle Ages if you view it from a Western European perspective of course uh, uh, and that's the way that it has been viewed. And of course, it's been called the Middle Ages as the, the era of Christendom when you know the Catholic Church was preeminent. Um, and that is all true as far as Western Europe is concerned. But if you look at uh, the, uh, the geopolitical ramifications of uh, what happened uh, at the beginning of that uh, millennium and uh, uh, who was actually in charge, uh, it's a thousand years of uh, dominance uh, of uh, powers emanating from the steppe, right? So steppe nomadic peoples of mainly Turkic or Mongol origin. And sorry, um, sorry to interrupt, but just for the sake of the listeners, could you also explain uh, the geography of the steppe? So the inner Asia, well, I mean, the steppe is, of course, the, the, the term that has been used uh, quite widely because there is this misconception that uh, steppe peoples are, uh, you know, pure nomads, which they weren't. Uh, but uh, the, the term that is favored by scholars today is Inner-Asia. And Inner-Asia is a blanket term which uh, is used to cover a vast area that stretches from uh, Manchuria, or northeast, uh, what is now northeast uh, uh, China, uh, to uh, the plains of Hungary. Uh, well, I mean, Inner-Asia, of course, doesn't uh, stretch as far as Hungary. It's, uh, you're talking about uh, the, uh, the um, uh, basically uh, southern Russia, um, uh, Central Asia, uh, so the five stans in Central Asia, uh, also including uh, Afghanistan and uh, what now constitutes Xinjiang, uh, that's uh, the that, or East Turkestan, um, and uh, in some cases even Tibet. Right. So this uh, this area, uh, which during this millennium in effect constituted a relatively homogenous, not homogenous, no, sorry, that's not the right word, relatively inter interconnected but heterogeneous uh, uh, cultural zone. Right? And, uh, and uh, from this area, of course, uh, arose uh, uh, a series of imperial states and uh, military powers that uh, basically determined uh, the course of Eurasian politics. Um, so you cannot actually understand the history of this millennium without understanding that the locus of power was actually in this area and every other state in Eurasia or Afro-Eurasia, if you in include North Africa, uh, was uh, um, the, 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 the trajectory of, uh, uh, of, I suppose, historical developments in these areas were uh, 
to a greater or lesser extent, always impacted by uh, these uh, the, what 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 happened in the zone. It's almost an empire as, or the collection of steppe empires were almost as dominant as the Roman Empire itself was, you know, just in the oh, yes, years yes. following it. Uh, oh yes, and uh, in fact, much more extensive. And I include in that, sorry, the reign of the Republic as well. Yes, so it's, yes. it's a thousand-year domination yes. in that area. Yes, yeah, so from, yeah, so from a diachronic perspective, of course, uh, it's uh, the the longevity, of course, of this, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, cultural and political domination uh, was uh, was as long as that of uh, Rome in, in Western Eurasia, and in terms of. Uh, uh, the uh, geographical reach, of course, uh, much, much more extensive, right? So you're talking about an area. So steppe peoples uh, either controlled directly or indirectly everything between France and Japan. Right? It's well, the Mongol empires, the, mm. um, obviously the uh, later mm. uh, version, well, the, the latest and the combination of the steppe empires, but mm. uh, that was the largest connected empire of all time wasn't it yes it was yes well depending on how you sort of uh, <laughs> connected uh, i mean it's uh, the uh, it is often said that the british empire is the largest but uh, i mean you if you it it, it, it all determine it, it all depends on how you uh, sort of uh, define the borders of the mongol empire right so if you say that the the mongol empire also included what all of siberia then mongol empire is by far the largest um but um uh, I, th I think in most estimations, uh, that area is considered to be not part of the, the Mongol domain, whereas the northern parts of Canada, <laughs> right, which, of course, nobody lives in, and uh, over which Britain exercised virtually no authority at all either, uh, is included in uh, the, the, uh, the territorial... So the land mass is maybe bigger, but the domination is lesser. I mean, if you look at the areas that uh, the Mongols controlled at the time, this was the they controlled most the, the most important parts of the world at the time in terms of uh, you know economic capacity, and so on and so forth. Uh, the British Empire uh, controlled uh, the fringes of uh, the, uh, I suppose the 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 core zone, which is Eurasia, but never managed to dominate the core zone. Uh, so, uh, yes, the British Empire was phenomenally wealthy, and uh, it it did control a lot of territory. But so if you look at uh, the vast majority of that territory, it, uh, um, it, these are sparsely populated territories uh, in which uh, the uh, the native population uh, did not actually possess the uh, capacity the to capacity to, to to resist effectively. Hmm. So the conquests were correspondingly easier. Whereas, of course, the the, the Mongols were conquering regions that were. Uh, militarily speaking, the most advanced at the time. And I've even heard mm -hmm. Genghis Khan described as uh, the greatest, at least strategist, if not military mm -hmm. tactician of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, and even his subordinates, um, such as like, Subodai, being yes. compared to as mm -hmm. great a conqueror as Alexander the Great, and mm -hmm. that's one of his subordinates. Probably, yes, yes. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. They So this period is... Uh, well, why do you think this period is so under-researched and uh, under-examined by historians? Because uh, the steppe peoples uh, or the Inurations had the uh, had the bad luck, I suppose, of uh, uh, not having a powerful state now, right? So uh, all the uh, the um, the main players in uh, global politics of today are uh, political and biological descendants, I suppose, of. Uh, of peoples whom <laughs> the right. Mongols and the others conquered. So the, the, the historical record 
concerning uh, the, the, the Turkic and Mongol peoples. Most of it was produced by uh, peoples who were either hostile to them or who wished to sort of uh, uh, disguise the fact that uh, back then, of course, uh, um, their ancestors were far less significant uh, than they are now. Um, and uh, we, we, had, we, we discussed the, the significance of, you know, or the, uh, well, not the significance, but we discussed how uh, history is, uh, to a large extent, unreliable. Right? And, uh, and uh, I, I think the, the, the main victims, if you could call them that, of, of that uh, um, lack of um, consistency in assessing uh, a culture's importance, uh, the main victims of that phenomenon, I suppose, were uh, the steppe peoples of innovation. So going back to the uh, early stages of the Eurasian steppe empires, uh, which coincided with the fall of the Roman, uh, or perhaps caused uh, the fall of the mm. Western Roman Empire. How did the Roman Empire of Augustus's day differ from the Roman Empire of 390 AD? Mm. And to what date do you ascribe the fall of the Roman, Republic, uh, Roman Empire as closely as possible? Well, I mean, it depends on which Roman Empire that you're talking about, right? So um, uh, the Western half of it uh, was uh, was ended as a political entity in 476 AD, which is the traditional date. And I think we should probably stick with the traditional date uh, for, for that. But, um, of course, people argue that uh, uh, sort of a, a remnant state existed in Dalmatia uh, until decades later. Um, but um, basically by then, of course, the, the western half of the empire was dead and had disappeared. And uh, the eastern half, of course, uh, it, Went it lasted for a long, long time and, uh, of course, uh, was uh, definitively ended in 1453. But in fact, as a, as, a, as a military power, it was effectively destroyed in 1204 when the Crusaders sacked Constantinople, right? So uh, the, uh, the, the last version of the, uh, the, of the Eastern Roman Empire, or the Byzantine Empire, uh, was a pale reflection of its former self, right? It was a, a localized... Aegean, Eastern Mediterranean, uh, Hellenic Greek states, rather than, I suppose, uh, uh, the um, the hegemonic power that, uh, that was the Roman Empire. Well, was the Roman Empire, when it ceased to have its Western um, side, did that, mm. was it a much, obviously a weakened state, but was it also a shadow of its former self as soon as the Western Roman Empire fell? No, that's, uh, the interesting thing is, is that uh, by the time that the Western Roman Empire fell, uh, the, the economic heartland and also the, uh, the, uh, the political and military heartland of the, the Roman state was its eastern half. Uh, so the west was a very, very weak uh, sort of twin of the, of the, uh, of the east. And so uh, the, the, the collapse of the, the Western Roman Empire did not actually mean the diminution of Roman power as such. And of course, later in the, the 6th century, uh, Justinian uh, uh, pulls off a reconquest of much of the, the former Mediterranean uh, Western Mediterranean lands of the Roman Empire. Uh, so uh, it wasn't until the 7th century, uh, during the, um, the aftermath of the great uh, Byzantine or Eastern Roman and Sasanian War, uh, at the beginning of the 7th century, that uh, Roman power finally uh, uh, diminishes to a significant extent, and Rome becomes more or less a regional power rather than uh, the, its, uh, its former self. Did Justinian's plague have a big part to play in that as well? 
I think a lot of scholars would agree that that is actually the case. Right? And so, for the listeners, could you just describe what Justinian's plague was? The Justinian's plague was this catastrophic uh, incident, which um, probably uh, more than anything else weakened the Eastern Roman Empire and uh, prevented it from. Uh, uh, well, I mean, but but then again, of course. Uh, uh, we always like to talk about the Big Bang, right? So this was the the thing which uh, killed uh, a particular state. And uh, given the, uh, of course, our preoccupation with the current outbreak, COVID outbreak, uh, this uh, last year and this year, I think it's easy for people to sort of say that this is the thing that uh, uh, caused the end. But uh, it was one of the, the substantial causes. A significant uh, portion of the population was affected. Wasn't it 15% of the world population? I mean, it's it's impossible, it's impossible to quantify. To it's impossible yeah. to quantify, but it may be, may have been as high as thirty percent. Who knows? Um, Jesus. Uh, so, uh, but um, certainly, certainly, uh, this was a catastrophe. But um, this wasn't a, that that didn't actually finish off the empire as a, as a, as a dominant force. Uh, but uh, it was one of the the uh, the combination of factors which led to uh, the the final sort of uh, dissolution. Of uh, Rome as uh, as a dominant uh, imperial power, and of course uh, the Eastern Roman Empire uh, continued in the Balkans and uh, in Anatolia for a long, long time, but uh, never again was it was it the the potent uh, you know force that uh, it had been before. So uh, we like to talk about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Um, the empire, to go back to your original question, the empire of the fourth century was nowhere near as weak as people think it is think it was. Um, in fact, militarily speaking, I, I think most historians would now agree that the Roman Empire of the 4th century was probably more formidable than the Empire of Augustus. Uh, it's certainly, its uh, military manpower was, uh, had been greatly expanded. Um, there is a bit of debate about that too, but certainly the quality of the troops uh, that the Romans possessed were probably superior. What about the as quality? Were the, as were the quality of the commanding officers. That's what I was about to say, yeah, was it? Because yeah. I always think of... Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I, I wouldn't know, but I was—I'd always sort of a, a sort of late republic as Rome at its most unassailable, with leaders like Caesar, Pompey, uh, Crassus, and stuff. But yes, I, I mean, it's the, the Roman military tactics uh, during the Repo- during republican times was very rudimentary compared to uh, the the mode of warfare that we encounter in late antiquity. So warfare that was waged in in late antiquity was a lot more sophisticated <laughs> than. Uh, the war, the the, the, uh, the basically the blood warfare that uh, you experience in late republican times. Uh, when it comes to strategy and tactics, uh, the I suppose the high point of uh, uh, Roman proficiency in that in these in these fields were uh, the time of the Punic Wars. Really, Scipio Africanus, by far the greatest Roman general ever. I agree. Uh, and then <laughs> uh, and then of course uh, Caesar. Uh, I mean Caesar was a good general too, but. Uh, uh, the, 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 the opponents that uh, the Romans had to face post-Scipio uh, were um, nowhere near as militarily sophisticated as the enemies that they would face later. I mean, the Parthians, of course, in some cases, uh, uh, when they uh, uh, conscripted uh, um, inner-Asian um, troops uh, to fight for them. Uh, Surina, for example, who defeated Crassus. I mean, uh, you, you, uh, for the first time, you're seeing... Uh, sophisticated warfare uh, of the steppe type uh, being encountered by the Romans. And of course, that, that led to the annihilation of the Roman army at Karai. 
Well, that's what uh, I found fascinating because I'd always known about Crassus's defeat at Karai, but I'd never made the connection between Parthia and the Steppe Empires. It's, it, that's, that is the funny thing because Parthia itself originated in the Steppes. But once it conquered Iran, it, uh, it sort of morphed into a more or less traditional Iranian state. And um, the almost like a late Persian Empire. Yes, it was. It was basically a continuation of the Achaemenid Empire in many ways. Although it did have uh, more innovation traits than uh, the Achaemenid Empire to a certain extent. Even the Achaemenid state in its early stages, uh, there is an argument that the the uh, uh, the the founding dynasty of uh, uh, of the Persian Empire was actually of uh, uh, steppe origin, right? As well, but um, uh, the the. The interesting thing about Surina, of course, is that uh, he is the uh, the leader of the, the Surin clan, uh, which presided over uh, Sakai, or Scythian, Central Asian tribes that had settled in uh, in Sistan, or Sakastan, in eastern Iran. And the troops that he uh, commanded were, of course, nearly entirely of Central Asian origin. And uh, so the Parthian king, uh, to whom Surina owed allegiance, um, called upon him, of course, to help him defend uh, Parthia from the Romans. And uh, he did so brilliantly by annihilating uh, Crassus's invading force. And then, of course, the Parthian king realized that uh, this was getting a bit too dangerous for himself as well. So he had uh, Surana assassinated. Dangerous uh, oh, because Surana was posed a threat to his leadership. Oh, yes, of course. I mean, his army was far too strong. <laughs> uh, probably this was the strongest army in the region at the time. And uh, the, the Saka uh, tribes, of course, after Surina's assassination, never again, to any significant extent, participates in uh, the Parthian wars uh, against Rome. And so people you know, often wonder, why is it that uh, suddenly there is this huge victory where the Parthians look invincible? And then later, of course, the Parthians usually get uh, walloped by the Romans. Mm. And you never see again the type of sophisticated tactics uh, that uh, were pulled off by uh, the so-called Parthian army at Karai. And this was because, of course, uh, these, uh, uh, the, um, the, the troops that uh, followed the, the House of Surin uh, later expanded, in, expanded east and became a separate independent entity from the Parthian Empire. And they set up a, a whole empire of their own in what is now Afghanistan, Pakistan, and uh, northwestern India called the, the Indo-Parthian uh, Empire. Um, I mean, Indo-Parthian is probably, uh, you know, is not an accurate sort of a description of that state. It's more Saka, it's, it's more Scythian, but in any case. And uh, they had, a, had an astonishing long history in India as well. And uh, uh, I believe uh, remnants of uh, the uh, Indo-Scythian uh, empire uh, existed in India until uh, the 4th century AD. So it was, uh, it was, it was astonishingly long-lived, and they were, uh, in the end, uh, conquered by the Guptas. Uh, but um, that's an entirely different topic. Different topic. Yeah. The, but perhaps if you could explain the relationship between the Parthian Empire and uh, the Huns who emerged onto the historical stage mm-hmm. um, at the fall of the Western Roman Empire. So... Uh, there, there isn't any direct connection between the Parthians and the, the Huns, but uh, the, the Huns, um, more and more information is becoming available as we speak, uh, genetic evidence, archaeological evidence, which I think strongly corroborates uh, uh, the, um, the assertions that I've made in my book in particular about the connections between the Huns of Europe and the, the Xiongnu of uh, what is now Mongolia and, um, I suppose, north and uh, northwestern China. 
um, that's I'm referring to the uh, the uh, the modern geo- geographical uh, um, um, areas that uh, were originally controlled by the the Xiongnu. Now Xiongnu, of course, is the the modern Mandarin pronunciation of the the name of this people. Uh, most scholars now I think agree that uh, the name probably sounded something like Hunnu uh, in um, uh, in old Chinese in early Middle Chinese. Uh, so the the um, the name of the the Xiongnu, and we also have other evidence, uh, documentary evidence, which all point in the same direction that the the name of the 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 empire of the Xiongnu was the same as that of the Huns. Um, so so that's the et- etymology of the word Hun comes from the original. Yes, yes, uh, it comes from the Xiongnu. Xiongnu. So the the Huns of uh, Europe and also the Huns of uh, uh, Central Asia and in, in India also they they all claimed association with the the old empire of the Huns uh, in uh, in Mongolia and in what in what is now northern and uh, northwestern China and so uh, which is not to say that uh, biologically speaking uh, they are the same people there is increasing evidence which shows that uh, uh, even genetically uh, some of the people who ended up in Europe were connected to uh, people uh, that uh, originally inhabited the Xiongnu Empire, but um, the, the Xiongnu Empire or the Han Empire of Asia and the Han Empire of Europe, they were never uh, ethnic entities or racial entities. These are uh, polyglot, um, multi-ethnic, multilingual um, uh, empires. And the name Han is analogous to the name Roman, right? So whoever was a Roman right. was, uh, was somebody who uh, was a political subject of the Roman emperor. I hadn't thought of it like way. that. That's a good way of looking at it. Yes, exactly. So in other words, this is a political entity. It is not an ethnic or racial entity. And therein lies the, the problem with, I think, uh, past historiography on the Huns. They thought of the Huns as a racial group or an ethnic group because, of course, the, the preoccupation with uh, the, the, the concept of race in the 19th century and the 20th century. But really, um, even if you go to Central Asia today, uh, if you look at the people and the, and the, the way in which uh, societies are structured, uh, these ethnic uh, definitions um, don't really capture the reality of the situation on the ground. Right? So, for example, if you go to Uzbekistan and you ask somebody, uh, what ethnicity are you? And uh, there is a joke that somebody would respond to you that, uh, in, the, in the following, my son is an Uzbek, my daughter is Tajik. What does that even mean? Right? Mm. Uh, it just means that uh, you know, for, for a male person to be an Uzbek is more advantageous if you enter the marriage market. Was was there was uh, racial identification important for the ruling class though of the steppe empires, or was it, it was it a sort of was it heterogeneous across the board? Could uh, it, it could was it hetero- like- heterogeneous across the board, but um, the name that was assumed uh, by uh, the the ruling elite, of course. Uh, uh, usually became the the name of the state that they governed, and uh, uh, so the uh, the uh, the the legend of the the ethnogenesis, if you like, of the the, the ruling clan, uh, was then turned into uh, the the um, the legend of the creation of the state as a whole, or the the the, the people that they governed as a whole. It almost became the racial identity, in a sense. It was never a racial identity, but uh, in some cases, word. in some cases, you could, you know, it was uh, presented as such. The identity uh, of the uh, yeah. ruling family became the identity of the of the, the group. Yes. yes, of the group. Yeah. Yes. So uh, they would assume, for example, if there was a particularly a powerful ruler, 
then uh, the, the group would assume uh, the, the name of that ruler and make that into their ethnic name. Right? So uh, th that is something which happens very, very frequently in steppe history. I mean, I've just mentioned Uzbeks. Right? Uh, it, it is assumed that that name derives from Khan Uzbek, uh, who was, of course, a very powerful ruler of the Golden Horde and uh, who uh, Islamized uh, the, uh, the, the, the Turkic tribes that uh, made up uh, the, the, the core of that, that, that empire, which was originally Mongol in origin. Uh, and so the name still survives and has become an ethnonym. But of course, uh, the people who carry that name today uh, probably don't have any relation, uh, relation to the, uh, the, the, the core ethnic group that, uh, uh, that uh, Uzbek uh, presided over. Yeah. I know Genghis Khan... Uh, and the Mongol Empire was uh, known for its uh, meritocratic approach to recruitment and mm. uh, they, they didn't discriminate uh, mm. to what we we're saying. They didn't discriminate where you were from. It was if you were the best at this or that or you could uh, lend this skill uh, to the Mongol Empire, mm. uh, you were uh, you know, brought in. Mm. Uh, were the early steppe empires like that as well? Yes, no, very much so, very much so. Uh, but um, now, having said that, as in the Roman Empire, uh, there, there was a limit, right, uh, to how far you could rise. Uh, well, it depends on which period that you're talking about, too, right? But um, uh, usually in, in the steppe system, uh, the top uh, sort of positions of power were exclusively um, concentrated in the, the hands of uh, the ruling family, uh, which, which is not to say that uh, people who weren't part of the ruling family could not have powerful influence. And... They were usually the, the real people running the show behind the scenes. But uh, in order to maintain the, um, I suppose, the integrity of the imperial state and to keep it together, uh, the strategy was to concentrate uh, the top positions in the hands of uh, members of a single family, the, the ruling family in particular. So you, you find that uh, in most historical sources, uh, most of the, uh, the, uh, the players uh, who crop up in the historical record are people who are usually members of the ruling dynasty. But that, that is not because other people weren't involved. It's just that uh, in all key areas, uh, in order to maintain control, uh, these steppe uh, dynasties uh, tried to sort of uh, implement, I suppose, a system which is kind of similar to... Uh, I mean, feudalism is such a you know, problematic word, but uh, they, they, um, they practiced, I suppose... Uh, uh, a form of proto-feudalism or a centralized feudalism. So it's not the sort of the manorial system that you find in later me medieval Europe, but a system in which um, the the ruling king or the ruling emperor uh, shares uh, shares his rule with his brothers and uh, his uh, close relatives, who are also titled kings. Right? So you, you find that uh, there are numerous kings uh, and uh, people have uh, mistaken this to mean that uh, this was a completely disorganized, uh, disparate, uh, you know, group of political entities. They're all interconnected. Uh, but uh, so, in other words, a king is basically a governor. I mean, that, that's what they are. And uh, instead of allocating major fiefs uh, to uh, uh, people who are not blood related, um, uh, they they prefer to keep the major fiefs in the hands of people who are blood related. Uh, but uh, then they dished out minor fiefs. Uh, to, to allied clans and also to local rulers as well. And uh, do, do you think mm -hmm. people uh, within a feudal system mm -hmm. uh, consider themselves part of a feudal system? Because I've, in other words, do you think feudalism develops more organically than other political systems? And is it 
is it perhaps because it seems like quite an intuitive mm. uh, societal structure to me something that almost might develop in between barbarism quote unquote and mm. a more sophisticated political system well i mean feudalism has a long history in east asia um it was practiced by the zhou dynasty in china um in the first millennium um, bc and um, it was probably practiced in the steppes uh, even before that uh, so this was the the sort of uh, you know the native system of governance uh, that you had in uh, in Eurasia, and it developed in various forms. And the the most sophisticated form of it, of course, was pra- practiced by the Huns uh, of the Shona Empire, and they had an elaborate hierarchy of of kings and um, uh, and other sort of rank holders. Um, so they had a specific ranking system of uh, of governance. And um, this was basically, you know, their their mode of governance of administration, and um, and so and a similar system was also in place in Persia as well. And increasingly, of course, as you uh, you know, as the Roman Empire morphs into the, the later Roman Empire, a similar system is adopted in the Roman Empire as well. Uh, so, so that's yeah. oh, but that's what I'm almost saying. Is it is it something? That, uh, during the American Revolution, mm. they were very aware that they were writing a constitution. They were setting up a yes, yes. And but, do you think feudalism is almost just a default system to something more? No, I don't think like so. That? I don't think so. It's um, I, I think um, there are many ways of uh, governing uh, the state. But uh, the reason I think that uh, feudalism developed uh, in East Asia and also in Inner Asia was because they needed to govern more expansive states than uh, the states that uh, you have, you see in uh, in Western Eurasia. I mean, the Romans, of course, and uh, are an exception. But e- even if you look at uh, the, the Hellenic kingdoms uh, after Alexander, they basically practice Feudalism. something very similar. And that mm-hmm. this is a system that you have to have in, a, I suppose, a pre-modern society in order to govern uh, an expansive area without... Without uh, unity positive, as well. with, which, which is difficult mm-hmm. to control in any case. And uh, the, 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 I suppose, the centrifugal tendencies are very strong. And how do you prevent that right, from happening? So what, what the, uh, the Chinese and um, these Asian uh, peoples did was to come up with a system in which uh, uh, it allows for flexibility. It allows for flexibility and yet uh, has the, the ability to keep the dynastic state together. Right. So uh, it was a strategy to keep an empire together. And uh, it was very effective. Uh, it was very effective, and so it developed even further. That's interesting. Uh, it's yeah. flexible. It can like sustain itself yes. through um, mm-hmm. more trials than, mm-hmm. say, uh, an empire or, or a form. Well, I mean, or a unified uh, republic can. I mean, it, it's 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 nice. I, I suppose if you if you are trying to run a city state, a republican system worked perfectly mm-hmm. um, in antiquity as well. But uh, if you're trying to run an empire. It was very difficult to do so. And uh, the Roman state republic, of course, is, is the exception. But then again, of course, you could say that uh, the Romans also concentrated power in the hands of a few patrician families. And so it was an alliance of families, and they basically dished out fiefs amongst mm. themselves. Um, but um, Feudalism and everything except name, almost. Well, not everything, well, but I mean, there are more feudalist features than we but, think. Uh, and of course, uh, the, the system did not hold mm. eventually, and had to sort of morph into an empire. And then, of course, later, what you find in the, the Roman Empire is, is that the, the emperor, of course, governs, but he tends to dish out territory uh, to his relatives or his sons for them to govern in his mm. place. And uh, that's what, in, in, you know, later, of course, when the empire become unmanageable, 
Uh, that's what uh, the emperors end up doing, right? They they end up uh, practicing uh, the tetrarchy, and um, and later uh, the the emperor Constantine divides his empire uh, amongst his heirs in a way that's very similar to what what is happening in in Eurasia and, and of course also in Sasani and Iran, right? Where they dish out fiefs, large fiefs in particular. And the lesser provinces, of course, they would uh, grant to vassals and uh, you know uh, trusted men, uh, but uh, the larger fiefs, which could become dangerous <laughs> if controlled by somebody who's not related, are usually given to uh, family members. In the Roman case, it didn't work so well, uh, because I, I don't think the Romans ever uh, developed a, a concept of dynastic, uh, you know, legitimacy. Uh, whoever was the fittest ruled. <laughs> the Roman system. And, uh, but wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that's almost an advantage in a lot of ways, though? It was. It was in a, in a, in a lot of ways, too. And that also explains the longevity of the Roman state, right? So the, the end of the dynasty did not automatically mean the, mean the end of the Roman Empire, whereas in the steppes, of course, the end of the dynasty uh, was the end of the empire. Uh, so um, in some cases, it was not. Uh, for example, in the case of the White Huns, uh, the, the ruling dynasty originally was the Kidarite, dynasty. Later it was uh, replaced by the Hephthalites. Uh, but um, that sort of thing rarely happens. I mean, I suppose you could say that, uh, the, um, for example, the, you've got the, the ruler on Kaganes being established in the 4th century, and then they are replaced by the Turks, and then the Turks are replaced by the Uyghurs, but they're essentially ruling over the same territory. So yes, you've got a you know, change of dynasties, and they're all categorized as different empires. But essentially, they're the same. So you could say that dynastic shift did not lead to the complete disintegration of the state. But um, the um, but still, uh, dynastic uh, um, uh, transition was was a period of extreme turbulence. So whereas in the Roman uh, system, you can have dynastic transition without necessarily a major civil war, although civil wars do happen, obviously. Um, in the steppes, if you wanted to change from one dynasty to another, it was a much, much more of a major undertaking. Bigger transformation than, yes, uh, yes. than mm-hmm. a family exactly. uh, in the Roman Empire going down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I felt like the most fascinating part about your book was the connection that you drew between uh, the sort of quasi-feudal uh, political structures of the mm-hmm. early steppe empires and the medieval mm-hmm. uh, feudal or proto feudal system, uh, and I'd never, I'd, I'd never made that connection before between mm. uh, the the feudal system of uh, medieval mm. ages and uh, and the the step empires. Could you just describe the link between those two and how one influenced the other? This is my hypothesis, right? I, I think a lot more research is needed. But if you look at the Frankish uh, uh, governing system after the the collapse of the Western Roman Empire and the collapse of the uh, the Hunnic Empire. The system very, is very, very similar to the political system that was practiced by the Huns. And I think that there cannot be an accident, uh, given the fact that the, the Franks actually uh, 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 experienced a period of Hunnic rule. And Childeric, the founding king of the Franks, uh, there, is a, there is a hypothesis, uh, which I think is a quite valid hypothesis, that uh, he was established on the, the Frankish throne by the Huns. And in fact, uh, Frank, there is a Frankish legend which... Uh, basically states as much that uh, the, uh, that Childeric became the king of the Franks uh, due to the help of uh, of a Hun named Uyamat. And so scholars have uh, have uh, surmised that there was actually a, a Hunnic element within the, the Frankish elite uh, that contributed to the state formation of the Franks. 
But having, having read your mm. book and the arguments you make for that, it seems mm. so uh, likely that you're correct. Mm. Is, and it's not the preva- but it's not the prevailing view. No, it's certainly not the prevailing view. And uh, I've been criticized specifically for making that uh, um, hypothesis. Uh, but um, uh, back in the day, uh, it was uh, the, the connection between the Huns and the Xiongnu itself was considered to be uh, not the, the widely accepted scholarly view. Now, of course, uh, after decades of debate and uh, arguing, uh, the scholarly consensus has moved uh, very, very strongly in the direction of equating the two. It doesn't mean that they're the same, of course, but uh, there is definitely that connection. So I think uh, my thesis is being confirmed by more recent scholarship. And with regard to the diffusion of uh, feudal practices, I, I hate to use that word. I, I just use it because it's convenient. But is it too... But, wh- um, why do you hate to use it? Just because it's too broad? I think... Um, there, there isn't another word in the in, uh, in in the scholarly literature which to best describe what is happening, which is uh, the partition of uh, the dynastic ter- dynastic uh, realm amongst uh, royal heirs uh, as a method of or means of control and administration. Um, I mean, feudalism basically. It, but of course, you have to sharply distinguish between. Uh, uh, the feudalism that I'm talking about, and later feudalism as, as it was practiced in late medieval Europe, because that's what people think when they think of feudalism as, as an economic system, really. Whereas I'm referring to more to the political system of governance and that's that what, you find across Eurasia. And that's what you call uh, proto-feudalism. A proto-feudalism or centralized feudalism. So it's not as centrifugal as... Um, uh, as later manorialism, which is uh, which is what people regard to be feudalism, where basically every fiefholder is independent, right? And uh, the, the king is king in only only in name and is uh, is a nominal ruler or first among equals. Whereas uh, the feudalism that I'm talking about in this system, of course, uh, the uh, the central government actually did have quite a bit of control over the fiefs and uh, uh, was in charge. So there is a clear difference. And of course, the size of the fiefs differ. Uh, so if you look at the Frankish uh, uh, kingdom and the, the size of the territories that were allocated to royal heirs, this was huge. Right? A third of the state, half of the state, uh, depending on the circumstances. Uh, and uh, that is what happens in the East as well. Right? That, is, that is the form of governance that we are talking about. And um, in the Frankish system, of course, there aren't uh, clear delineated boundaries um, generation by generation. So it's not like there are you know, approximate regions that are dished out as fiefs, but the precise borders differ uh, by generation and by generation. And that is because uh, what is being inherited is not just the, the territory, but also the people and the resources. So the distribution of resources between heirs has to be fair <laughs> within the feudal system, yep. you see, or else that leads to conflict. And that's what usually happens in the Frankish case. But um, in the steppes, too, that's exactly the case. So it's not, uh, for example, it's not like a province where um, in the Roman system where you've, you've got a certain sort of province and that's what, what the governor you know, sort of presides over. Yes, there are provinces in the steppe system, too, but they're at a lower level than the, the fiefs. Mm. And uh, the fiefs might overlap uh, provincial borders. And uh, you might have a situation in which one person has a fief in widely disparate geographical regions. So, for example, in the Mongol case, um, uh, Batu, who is the grandson of uh, Genghis, Genghis Han, 
his main fief, of course, is uh, the Russian steppes, right? So the, the steppes of southern Russia, Ukraine and Kazakhstan and what have you. But he also has territory in, in the south, in Persia, and he also has territory in China as well. And, um, and so the, the, it's a dynastic inheritance. They have their major territory. But what usually also happens is the case, what usually also happens is that every heir is also given a stake in other territories as well in order to hold things together. Right. right? In the Mongol case, that is very, very clear. In the, in the case of um, the other steppe empires, it is not so clear. But um, uh, by giving everybody a stake in the entire dynastic realm, um, they were able to uh, prevent these uh, separate territorial states from breaking off entirely. Because it gave them a sense that they were exactly they would a be part losing of the exactly they, that they would be losing ah, right. part of their uh, sort of uh, domain if they did so. Uh, so it was a very clever strategy. Although I mean, in some cases it worked, sometimes it didn't. Uh, but um, in in other words, it's a much more complicated system than uh, we we think it is. Yeah. You also argue in the book that the the focus on German migration uh, when analysing the fall of the Western Roman Empire is uh, insufficient, well, insufficient to explain uh, the total mm-hmm. collapse of the empire. Did, but did the German migration play a big, play a big role oh, yes. at the same oh, time? Yes. Oh, yeah. yes. I think, in, uh, I think in the 2013 book, uh, because I was trying to make the point that uh, the, the, uh, the role of the Huns was very important in the, the final outcome, I think I probably sort of... Uh, um, um, that wasn't my intention, but I think uh, people might have, after reading the book, have, have gotten the impression that therefore the Germanic migrations was not impo- was, was not were important. Not important. Yeah. That's not uh, actually the case. They were important, uh, uh, fundamentally so. Uh, but uh, what I'm try- trying to say is, is that it was a combination of factors, right. and uh, the Germanic uh, migrations was the the consequence of the main event, which was the expansion of uh, inner Asian powers into uh, Western Eurasia. And, and, and it was not not the, the, the root cause, I suppose, of uh, what followed. Uh, but of course, the, the settlement of the Germanic tribes uh, was significant in the sense that uh, they consolidated the, the, um, uh, the uh, well, they, they, they made uh, the, the dissolution of the Western Roman Empire a permanent reality. So thereafter, of course. Because they were a population that could uh, stay there. Following the, or that could populate. They had, they had created, they had created states uh, which no longer could be reintegrated back into the Roman state, and uh, that also implied that they had a political system that was viable. And the question is, where did that system come from, right? Because if you see, look at Germanic Europe prior to uh, their migration into the Roman Empire, uh, prior to the migration of the Germanic tribes into the Roman Empire. There is no stable political system in place and they which in allows fact, for state formation. And they are, in fact, what you could almost call barbaric, the Gallic tribes and stuff. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to use the word barbaric. Um, they were sophisticated in their own ways. Mm. But um, uh, in terms of state formation, I think um, the Germanic uh, uh, tribal confederations were at, at, a, at a rudimentary stage. Um, they were developing, certainly. They were developing and they were being influenced by the Romans. And some have argued, of course, that uh, the, the state formation that you see uh, afterwards is, is a result of them becoming acculturated uh, with uh, Roman practices and adopting Roman habits. But my argument would be that uh, the system of rule that they implement thereafter is alien to the Roman system. So, so in the period between, say, the conquest of Gaul and 
say 400 AD, you think that's mm-hmm. the period when uh, step empire social and political uh, structures were integrated by the Germanic tribes. So the the, the conquest of the uh, the Germanic tribes by the Huns takes place between um, roughly uh, the 370s mm-hmm. and uh, the the 450s. And during that 80 year period, uh, during which um, most of Germanic Europe was under Hunnic rule, um, the Huns. Uh, I think there is clear evidence which suggests that the Huns. Uh, uh, imposed uh, the, the rule of their dynastic heirs on um, on these uh, tribal confederations, as is their common practice across Eurasia. And uh, as a consequence of living under that political system and experiencing that political system, uh, I think there is a clear uh, tendency in the direction of uh, the uh, Germanic tribes adopting some of these practices for themselves. And of course, mixing that with their own, you know, own uh, traditions and also uh, the administrative practices that they saw uh, in the Roman Empire as well. So it's not a you know one size fits all or you know, one tradition having the, the the sole influence. It's a combination of factors. So the the system that came into uh, existence in Western Europe was not entirely Hunnic. It wasn't entirely Roman. It wasn't entirely Germanic. It wasn't entirely Christian. It was a combination of all of these factors coming together. But mainly know. dominated by the. Uh, st- the social structures of state empires? I think on a political level, on a right. political level, uh, two uh, things were, uh, pre, you know, I think uh, the most important, although, I mean, we could debate that too, but uh, I think on, on a political level, when it comes to explaining the political system that was put in place, uh, I think the, the Honic precedents were uh, critical. They also, of course, uh, integrated that with uh, you know, Roman administrative practices as well. But I think uh, on a political level, the system that, is, that was implemented was influenced by uh, step precedents. And then the legitimacy for these dynasties were are provided by Christianity uh, later. So um, it's a very complicated process. Very complicated. A very complicated process. And because I was trying to make a point in 2013, uh, I think my, I might have overdone it a bit, but... Um, I think uh, that uh, that is corrected later uh, in my uh, later publications. But um, were they mm-hmm. were the step empires or the early step empires nomadic to any degree? Um, no, uh, is is the answer. So the uh, the step peoples were uh, the the dominant uh, tribes or the the dominant ethnic groups that uh, made up the the core of uh, the armies of these steppe empires were pastoralists. So these were people who moved about in search of pasture in periodic migration routes. So in other words, they had a specifically defined territory. Whereas I think nomadism gives you the impression that uh, they wander all over the place without any definite sense of belonging to a particular area. In the steppes, uh, I think the... (laughs) The mistake that people make is that is that they see the steps and think, oh, this is a vast expense leading to nowhere, and people are free to do whatever they like and free to move about wherever they like. That's definitely not the case. If you do that, then you basically um, lose your livelihood and you'd be exterminated pretty quickly. So you are operating in an area under tight leadership, in a strict hierarchy, and you're moving about in areas that are predetermined in order to basically survive. But were these, yeah. was that pastoralist uh, structure and mm. uh, these 
occasional migrations. Is that why on the historical record they've been viewed as nomads? Because yes, you're yeah. getting you're getting artifacts from many different areas. Well, because I mean, they did not. Uh, it was it was thought that they did not have established cities, uh, established dwellings in one place. That is also an error as well. The archaeology is showing that in fact uh, uh, a lot of these peoples were uh, seasonal migrants, let's put it that way. So uh, depending on what season it was, they would be, in particular seasons, they would actually be residing in uh, uh, permanent dwellings. And uh, in some areas of uh, the, the steppe states, of course, uh, they, they even had cities and towns. They practiced agriculture. Uh, so um, it's a very t- complicated hybrid system that they practiced. But when, you know, but to the... The so-called nomadic aspects of these peoples were exaggerated and magnified by uh, sources that were hostile to them to create the impression that uh, they were real savages. Right? These are barbarians who have no culture. And, Which was uh, but potentially a, a necessary fear to, uh, yeah, so to, to instill in your them, people. Yes. Yeah, to other them. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, to, to, I suppose, uh, create the impression that uh, uh, they are not legitimate alternatives to us. Right. right? So... Uh, because they were so militarily dangerous, uh, this was a necessary way of uh, um, both sort of separating their own population from them so that uh, their influence would not uh, intrude into, uh, for example, the Chinese sphere of influence, for example. The Chinese were paying tribute to the Xiongnu right, for a long, long time. And in that circumstance, of course, it was necessary uh, to demarcate boundaries very clearly so that... Uh, uh, People in our side of the border don't get any idea, yeah. <laughs> right? Or and there were defectors all the time who were going over to the other side, and uh, being appointed to you know, political positions in the the Han system, etc., and becoming even kings. Well, even so, even the history of the Mongols, just half the conquest seemed to be hmm. castles, sort of uh, surrendering before uh, before battle even takes place, because people are just terrified of. Yes, and of course, Terrified I mean, the, the local rulers are often integrated into the power structure and uh, they become part of the establishment very quickly. I mean, that's what empires are, right? I, I think uh, uh, we, we tend to sort of have an image of an empire. Uh, well, I mean, the, the modern European empires of the 19th century uh, has uh, fundamentally altered what we think of as being an empire. But uh, in pre-modern societies, an empire was, was a very heterogeneous entity in which... There was mixing at all levels. And a lot more basically. flexible in its geographical boundaries. And Yes, yes, a lot yeah. more flexible and fluid mm-hmm. and porous. Yes. You write in your paper that modern approaches to writing history are inadequate when addressing mm-hmm. this period in history, the early steppe empires. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you could, just for the listeners, explain what you mean by that. I think there is, uh, well, I mean, nowadays I think there is uh, quite a, you know, there has always been uh, great scholarship on Indonesia. Uh, not as much as I would like personally, I, but that is not because of the uh, the inefficiency or the the lack of expertise of the scholars who are engaged. It's uh, because of uh, uh, the fact that there are so few of them uh, compared to you know other areas of uh, of research. But now that's changing. Now that's definitely changing, and um, uh, there are you know certain very very competent scholars who are engaged uh, in the research of Indonesian history uh, in particular uh, of course the the great uh, Peter Golden who is um, who is a marvelous scholar and uh, many others now and uh, I, I think uh, step history is finally getting the the type of uh, Indonesian history is getting the the, the type of uh, uh, proper treatment that it uh, always deserved uh, but uh, I suppose um, 
it is only now that, well, it has always been an important uh, part of Russian historiography and Chinese historiography and Iranian historiography, um, sometimes in distorted forms. Uh, but uh, I think in Western historiography, uh, it, uh, people are just unaware of how significant uh, these empires were. And uh, they tend to be just uh, dismissed as mere barbarians. But, but do you find culture? Yeah. But do you find modern historians are hesitant to have a more generalized uh, approach to uh, history? And whereas, uh, from what I read of your book, you feel that because of the far-reaching implications of the steppe empires, it's mm. impossible to address them in a compartmentalized. Uh, yes, homogenous, yes. perhaps. Yes, uh, that's the problem, why? right? Because historians tend to sort of departmentalize and compartmentalize, and they specialize in specific periods and specific areas. Whereas if you want to uh, study the history of uh, Inner-Asian empires, it cuts across virtually every area and time period. Uh, and, uh, and so it's difficult to sort of appreciate that uh, because, of course, if you're specializing in a particular area, you tend to be preoccupied with that area. And I'm not trying to, uh, you know... Uh, downplay the importance of such research. It's just that uh, to, to understand this phenomenon, you have to have uh, a comparative perspective and an interdisciplinary perspective. Uh, that's, a, that's a must. And that is very difficult, of course, because of the, the, the huge number of languages that you have to master. Uh, and, uh, of course, the various disciplines that you also have to cross over into. Um, but, um, and the, the, the other problem, I, I think, is that um, because of the, the dominance of uh, the, the Marxist paradigm of viewing things, uh, we've touched on this uh, at the beginning, um, they tend to view uh, history as, as a progression towards something, right? So there's a, there's a model of progress from slave-owning societies to feudalism and then to capitalism and then to socialism. And it doesn't take into account technological advancements that come and go. Or, or rise yes, and, fall. and the, the problem is, is that the steppe uh, empires don't fit into any of this model at all. Mm. They could, they just completely sort of mess this up. So, because they don't neatly fit into any kind of uh, linear model, um, I think uh, that also was a problem. Um, but um, we'll see, we'll see. I think uh, there is a lot of great research that is coming out uh, for anyone who is interested to, 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 to read and view for themselves. Uh, these are written in languages that are easily accessible in English. Um, if you're French, uh, there's a great French scholarship on this as well, German scholarship too, um, and some very significant scholarship coming out of Russia and China as well. So, uh, so it's, um, it is openly available. It's no longer as obscure as it used to be. And uh, I think um, the sky is the limit, really. It's, it's very exciting because uh, every year, you find something very significant coming out. And you've almost, this, this almost opens up a whole new area of historical study co oh, yes, covering a thousand years. Of course, not, mm. not, not only a thousand years. That's when they were particularly dominant, mm. before and after as well. So um, it is a very significant area of research. And um, I would dare say that, um, you know, the, the book that I wrote in 2013 is already out of date. <laughs> there is so much material that has come out. Uh, that uh, I, what I'm pleased about is that the, the, the huge amount of research that has come out since then uh, has corroborated a lot of uh, the, the, um, the su suggestions and um, uh, assumptions that, uh, that, that, I, that I presented. That must be very satisfying. And, uh, that, that was very satisfying, although I, do, uh, you know, I have to improve things a lot and, uh, and probably have to sort of rewrite uh, whole chunks of the book in order to make it up to date. But, um, but still, I think uh, you know, we are sort of headed in the right direction. Uh, and um, 
more research, the better, and more debate, the better, right? I think uh, the worst thing that could possibly happen is somebody coming in and saying, this is the established view. And uh, yeah. therein lies the danger. Right? As we were talking at the start about sort of the arrogance, not just of historians, but of uh, people alive today, assuming that mm. uh, they know better, like assuming that we know better or we're a more sophisticated mm. civilization than any that has come before us, which mm. is partly why I find uh, mm. Rome so fascinating because it's almost this uh, civilization to, to most degrees as advanced as ours, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm. yet it's so ancient that it's it's almost like a mm-hmm. uh, it's almost something sci-fi about it that, that yes yes it's a it's a fascinating place uh, uh, ancient Rome and uh, I mean Frederick would be the better person to talk about it but um, uh, definitely uh, the, the level of sophistication is astonishing right? so it's it's just astonishing and uh, so it's not a sort of a linear sort of projection you know progression from primitiveness to sophistication it's a, it's a sort of <laughs> What, what, what do you what do you call it? Um, um, it's a reverse U shaped, you know, yeah, over uh, and over, over, over and over um, type of thing. Um, and there's even, I mean, completely uh, off topic, but there's uh, theories coming out about uh, ancient Egypt that the uh, Sphinx was actually uh, far older uh, mm. than than they initially thought, and it's something to do with the water erosion showing. Mm. Uh, where it was when Napoleon discovered it, and but it's it'd be fascinating to think that you know uh, something like the Sphinx was you know six thousand mm. years old as opposed to two and a half thousand, four and a half thousand years old. Yeah. But you Who know, knows? It, but knows? it changes the whole chronology of history so much uh-huh. to do so. Yeah, I, you know, I'm no Egyptologist, so uh, you know, the person mm. you might want to sort of talk to after afterwards might be uh, Brent Davis. He's our he's our Egyptologist from Melbourne Uni, from Melbourne University. Oh, I'd love to. Uh, and um, but um, he'd be able to sort of uh, fill you in on you know, the latest uh, you know mm. research on, in that area. Well, back but, back uh, to what you specialize in. Then I was I was also fascinated. Well, could you describe what the Afro Eurasian interactive system was? And uh, and I was wondering, mm. is the Belt Road Initiative a modern iteration of that to some degree? Uh, the the Afro Eurasian interactive sphere, I think, is is an inclusive term that has been coined by uh, modern historians. Uh, in order to better appreciate uh, the complexity of uh, medieval and uh, uh, ancient societies. Uh, so, uh, so it's an attempt to move away from, I suppose, the Eurocentric uh, way of uh, viewing history. Um, now, having said all that, I, I don't want to sort of downplay the importance of European history either. right? I think we're going in the opposite extreme direction in some cases. And... Uh, uh, that, that's not the that, that's not the goal. What we, what we are trying to do is to uh, look at the interconnectivity of uh, Eurasia and uh, North Africa, and uh, later on, on, of course, of, that interactive sphere it expands even further to include the entire globe. And uh, yes, the the uh, the local developments and the the uh, the specificity of local cultures are very important as well. But you cannot understand how societies develop without understanding. Uh, this interconnectivity, right? And uh, so it's not an either-or. You have to take it together. And uh, as for the Belt and Road Initiative, it's it's a political, you know, project. I, I don't... I, well, I mean, inspired by, I suppose, a certain romantic sort of... Uh, um, attraction to the Silk Road. Uh, attraction to the Silk Road and also uh, the, the notion of uh, uh, grandeur of the, the Han Dynasty and the Tang Dynasty, which expanded into the West. And uh, modern China, of course, uh, under the the CCP, views itself very much as sort of the heir 
of that imperial tradition. Uh, so it's an imperial project, in my view, um, and um, that, that's, that's what is happening. Um, it might be a massive generalization, but could you almost say then that the uh, ambition uh, and scope of uh, the steppe empires is now felt within uh, the CCP as it exists today in a lot of ways? Amongst some academics in China, I think... Um, the, but, I mean, it's... Um, hard to say. It's hard to say. And uh, uh, they, they regard uh, the steppe empires as an extension of uh, Chinese history, which is, of course, uh, completely erroneous. Um, I mean, inter-Asian history also includes the history of, of China. It's perhaps the other way around. Uh, um, at least from a, you know, sort of a, you know, the perspective of somebody living in the 13th century or um, the 5th century or, or what have you. Uh, so it, it's always danger, dangerous to sort of engage in anachronistic uh, sort of attributions and say this culture belongs to what modern country. It's a ludicrous idea, right? So, uh, but um, uh, both Russia and China uh, have of late uh, tried to sort of associate themselves with um, the Mongol Empire to a certain extent. Uh, the, the Chinese, of course, claiming that the, the, the Mongol Empire was a Chinese empire. Right? The, it's the got, it's, it's got the same sort of expansive entitlement. Yes, yes, and that that also that means that uh, creates the impression that as the sort of the political and historical heir to that tradition, they're entitled to a certain um, uh, area of control, uh, and the same with Russia too. Uh, Russia um, claiming to be the heir to a certain extent of the Golden Horde, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, as the sort of geopolitical heir. Um, now it's. Um, that's, of course, a case of history being misused uh, for modern uh, political lens. Um, but, uh, of course, not, it's not just the Chinese and the Russians who are guilty of it. I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's, a, it's a historical phenomenon, right? So, uh, the name Roman, of course, being bandied about mm. <laughs> by everybody uh, after the, the Romans uh, exit the scene and everybody claiming to be the heir of the Roman uh, you know, imperial tradition. Even the Russians taking on the word Tsar. Yes, yes, That's exactly. The third Rome, right? So uh, this is this sort of sort of appropriation of uh, of, of a powerful ancient tradition or, or medieval tradition in order to justify current political aims has a long history in and of itself. And so that that's an area which which would be fascinating to research as well. Um, We've talked area, uh, unfortunately. Mm. We've uh, talked about it off air, but uh, I saw that the um, America just probably the best thing that the Trump administration did on its yeah. uh, uh, exit, which you know, is not saying much, but was to declare the uh, treatment of the Uyghurs as a genocide. Is there perhaps a par- parallel between how under-researched and unknown the history of uh, this mm-hmm. region of the world is mm-hmm. and the world's current indifference to uh, the treatment of, uh, of the, the Uyghurs? Uyghurs? Um... Because I've got to be honest. Before I'd heard about the uh, what was Possibly. going on, what Possibly. was going on in Xinjiang or East Turkestan, mm. I'd, I'd never heard the word Uyghur. Mm. I'd never known about yes, uh, yes. the history of that region. I think uh, among specialists, of course, it was always well known. But uh, of course, uh, amongst the general public and even the educated public, of course, uh, in, in Western societies, it's a distant area for them, right? and uh, it's very unfamiliar. And uh, and because even if even if people were uh, uh, interested in what was happening and outraged by, by what was happening. There's very little that can be done realistically. Uh, so uh, 
there is a tendency to turn a blind eye. And of course, the Uyghurs have the uh, added disadvantage of being Muslim in a time when, of course, uh, uh, I suppose there is a lot of prejudice against uh, um, against people who ascribe to uh, that religion. And so... That, well, that's, that is a, that's, that is a, that's that what is I find a, the most sort of disgraceful thing about, about mm-hmm. it. Are the Muslim majority countries that are turning their back on the Uyghurs because it's that too, a, yes, because yes. it's a economic inconvenience mm-hmm. to do so, and you know it's uh, human history. I always say is a, is a history of murder, <laughs> right from the beginning, and um, unfortunately that is the uh, the dark secret or the, the 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 harsh reality of human existence. That's almost nothing but history in a sense. Yes, history is a, is a history is a history of massacres and wars and uh, injustice. And, As, aside uh, from the arts, all you study is death and conquest, I guess. That's well, I mean, pretty much I what history is. Could, it's, it's a bleak way of viewing it, viewing mm-hmm. it, but I think it's it's uh, it's pretty close to the reality of it. Pretty accurate. And um, and so, uh, I always say it's very good to be a pessimist because if you're a pessimist, then uh, you 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 won't be surprised <laughs> by what happens. And if there is if there is the occasional good thing that happens, then you'd be glad and you'd be happy. Whereas if you're an optimist, you're always going to be disappointed at some point. And uh, uh, it might actually ruin your life. Exactly. That, well, that's been my, my exact opinion on mm. the whole situation in Xinjiang. I've been like, mm. isn't it better to assume mm. that this is going to be a genocide than to not assume it's going to be a genocide mm. in the sense that you'd rather mm. you'd rather have prevented uh, that from taking place than wake up in five years with you know, mm. five million corpses on your hands. It's like you would have yes, ass- you would have, yes. it would have been safer to assume Hitler mm. was as anti-Semitic as he was than to have mm. a more charitable opinion of him. Yes, yes. I think uh, the more press it gets, the better, mm. because of course that will uh, put pressure on the uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, to uh, to scale back whatever that they're you know sort of uh, planning to do. And uh, the more scrutiny and the more attention, the better. And I hope they get the uh, the attention that uh, they deserve. The situation, uh, the the Uyghurs, obviously, and uh, the situation not not simply in Xinjiang, but uh, in other places in China and elsewhere as well. Um, but um, as always, uh, political interests and economic interests intervene. And um, I just hope that that won't, won't be the case. There would be a focused approach. Um, but um, who knows? You know, who knows? I asked the same question of uh, Frederick, and I'm interested to hear uh, your take on it as well. Uh, but why is it, do you think, that the longer ago someone lived the less morally judgmental we are about their actions as a conqueror frederick mm-hmm. frederick thought that uh essentially might is right which i think is true to a degree mm-hmm. but even I've, I've been more of the opinion is it, is it once everyone who was affected by it is dead mm-hmm. it's you can slowly start to view say someone mm-hmm. like genghis khan better mm-hmm. uh, uh. If you, if you look at contemporary historiography, uh, they're there, you know, appalled by what is happening, right? Uh, but uh, but I suppose the, the problem with judging somebody like Genghis Khan and later Timur uh, and what have you is that um, if you use Alexander as the standard, Alexander was a phenomenal butcher in his own right, and yet he had historians to cover for him and uh, sugarcoat everything that happened. And so he is regarded as the civilized conqueror, whereas, of course, Genghis Khan, who effectively did the same thing uh, because he, he never bothered <laughs> to take historians with him. There is one historical text called the, the Secret History of the Mongols, which was only for the, the reading of 
members of the imperial family, um, which has come to light, which presents him in a more favorable light. Uh, but of course, uh, everything else was written by uh, his enemies. And of course, he's the, uh, the incarnation of the devil, right, mm. basically. Um, and I mean, Timor, of course, uh, you know, knew this would happen. So he took his own historian with him. So there is uh, one, you know, sort of, you know, text which basically presents him as the the sword of Allah, basically, who's doing just, you know, who's, who's trying to cleanse the world of evil. And so he's the righteous conqueror. And of course, uh, there is a historian called Arab Shah who <laughs> has a completely different take on it and uh, presents him as a monster, which is probably closer to the truth. Mm. Um, but... Um, well, it's interesting, even like Caesar, you know, was writing... Mm was just, didn't just get yeah, self, yeah, published his own history of the conquest he was doing as he was yes, yes. doing it. But. And of course, uh, that's the only account that we have, right? Well, I mean, there, there are, you know, sort of other sort of, uh, you know, sort of descriptions uh, here and there. But essentially, if you want to you know, learn about the, the history of the conquest of Gaul mm. uh, by the Romans, then uh, Caesar, unfortunately, is your source. You know? but, but the reason I also, uh, the sort of, might is right argument I don't feel goes far enough or isn't nuanced enough is because we'll have um, we judge our own leaders uh, mm. on we, we have higher moral uh, standards mm. for our own leaders today mm. uh, than regardless of whether we're on the side of the winning team we have higher mm. standards for them than we have for um, say Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great mm -hmm. I think um, inevitably we'll have to, you know, there is a danger of anachronistically applying our values to the past. That's something that, that's obvious. But, uh, for example, um, let, let's take an uncomfortable issue, pedophilia, for example. Of course, we in the modern world regard it to be unacceptable. And yet the Greeks practiced it mm, in the past. It's right? the most bizarre thing about their history, and, I think. And yet, and of course, uh, people are of the opinion, uh, most of my colleagues would probably be of this opinion as well, that this is, it's anachronistic to, uh, you know, take our values and judge the Greeks by our standards. And yet, I would argue, uh, there were people right around the Greeks <laughs> who thought that this was a terrible thing mm -hmm. at the same time that they were practicing, uh, the, the Greeks were practicing this. And it wasn't as widespread as uh, as um, uh, as people think, right? It was uh, it was primarily practiced by the elites. Uh, it was a very peculiar social system. So that they yeah, have it's sickening. It's sort of have. the biggest blight on their, yeah. their history. And so, should we just whitewash that and say that's just uh, you know a, a practice that we don't understand? And but of course, there were people who were living at the time mm. in other places who thought that this was a revolting thing. And, so, that, and that's a comparison Frederick makes between yeah. Caesar and Livy, saying that you know. Killing even Livy said at the time that mm. uh, killing this Livy the Elder, killing this many people was not good for the world, uh, and that you know to even mm. there was no even having there weren't the contemporaries didn't necessarily think it was an acceptable or a morally good no, thing to do. Uh, yeah. something like a million Gauls probably slaughtered uh, by Caesar, right? Uh, Celtic genocide. Uh, so this this is. Um, and so how do we sort of assess this? Inevitably, of course, we'll have to you know deliver a moral judgment. But, but who is you know giving that judgment, right? That that's the other problem, and um, and so does do moral judgments almost become redundant when addressing history? Then it can become a political weapon. It can be weaponized uh, all the time, and that's the problem, right? So uh, if you if you demonize a particular group, or if you use uh, the the our moral sort of standards to judge a particular history, 
of a particular group and not apply the same standards across the board, uh, then uh, it, it is possible to demonize a particular uh, individual or group and uh, try to sort of s- sideline them from the political discourse. And I think that is uh, very dangerous. Very dangerous. And um, uh, I mean, for example, I mean, I, I, I fully appreciate uh, the efforts of many scholars to, uh, you know, expand the, the scope of research uh, to include people who've long been neglected, right, whose histories have not been given the attention that they deserve. And I suppose I'm, to a certain extent, engaged in that practice myself. But um, uh, to say that a particular group of people in the past were particularly more evil than another group and therefore, they have to, you know, sort of, uh, uh, their descendants have to bear responsibility for what their ancestors did. Uh, that I think is uh, is a seriously misguided approach, uh, precisely very... because um, no particular ethnic group or group of people have a, have a monopoly on evil deeds. Mm. If you look at history, every group uh, has, uh, I suppose, what we would call a shameful aspect um, uh, in their history. History was evil and mm-hmm. difficult for most people, I think. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And I think it's, it's, uh, I think it's healthier to recognize the fact that history is a very complicated thing and the human beings are very complicated. And uh, instead of, uh, I suppose, finger-pointing and uh, name-calling, if we had a more civilized, a truly civilized debate, which is very difficult, um, then uh, that would actually be better, certainly be, be-, be better for historical research. If, if we want objectivity, mm. although we cannot really attain objectivity, if we want any semblance of objectivity, it's necessary to allow for that discourse. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been uh, fascinating, Huan Jin, and I really appreciate you coming coming on. It's a pleasure. And I uh, found your book fascinating. As I said, I can't wait to finish it. And uh, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.